So now I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Proverbs, we're going to be in verse 11 today. Now the last time uh, we were in Proverbs, uh, last uh, week, uh, we talked about our words. Well, a little earlier that, in early August, uh, we learned about pride and humility in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. We learned that pride is when we stand in arrogance over God and other people. In other words, we live for ourselves and nobody else. Humility, on the other hand, means to deny ourselves in submission to God so that we can live for his glory. And last week, uh, we learned that our words matter a great deal to God. God is listening. Our words have real power, either to destroy or to heal. And what we say reveals the condition of our hearts, whether we're proud or humble people. Either pride or humility is what tumbles out of our mouths. And so today, we're going to learn that our attitude toward money matters a great deal to God, too. And that's because money can easily become our idol. Having things can be something uh, that, that we replace God with. Money often brings uh, circumstantial security and comfort in this life. And so we can end up desiring more than God. Well, because God seems far away sometimes. And, and wealth, well, it seems so immediate and satisfying, doesn't it? And when we have that attitude, we can forget the eternal treasures that are waiting for us in our heavenly home. Now, God does not tolerate the worship of idols at all. And that's because idols are false and powerless to helpless. But ironically, they do have the power to do a great deal of damage to us. God does not tolerate our setting him aside for anything else at all. Not because he's an egotist but because he cares for us. He knows that when we put our trust in anyone or anything else other than him, it's really, really bad for us. In fact, these are the first two commandments. Exodus chapter 20, and I'll begin in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, God is setting up his credentials for his authority to be able uh, to give these commandments. And after all, he created us. He's the one who breathes life into us who, and who provides for our every need. And so God commands in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is that you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And so clearly, God takes the matter of idols very seriously, and so should we. Money can become our idols because it not only provides the things uh, that we need, but it also provides access to power and a life of ease. And so as we, as we focus on, on wealth and on achieving wealth, we can easily forget, even as God's followers, that in addition to wealth being God's provision for us and our family, that God has other plans and other purposes for our wealth, too. The late R.C. Sproul, the great uh, teacher of theology, 
and a wonderful pastor and preacher as well, he sums it up like this. We can so spiritualize the things of God that we miss, for example, that Jesus himself spoke of giving food to the hungry, giving shelter to the homeless, clothing the naked, and visiting those who are sick or in prison. In the Old Testament, physical property was integral to the promises that God made to his people, which included a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's the place that we see, of course, in Exodus 3.8. God spent a great deal of time and effort in the Old Testament demonstrating to his very stubborn people, uh, people much like us, that he takes care of his own. This is one of the lessons that the Hebrews learned as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years where there was no food and water. And so the way that God took care of his people was to miraculously rain down this stuff called manna uh, that they could eat every day. And he also drew water out of dry rocks for them to drink. These are miracles. And so God not only understands our need for material things, including food and water. In other words, this is a kind of wealth. But he also created us to need those things so that we would remember who gives them to us. And so Sproul goes on to say, we have been made as physical creatures with physical needs and desires. God in his plan of redemption is very concerned about that. Christians as well are bidden to be concerned about the material welfare of human beings, about people who are starving or ill, about those who are naked or homeless. These concerns are central to the Christian faith. Now, uh, one of the points that we, we can glean from all of this clearly is that wealth in and of itself is no evil thing. We've, we've given it a bad rap in our popular culture. In fact, wealth is the means God uses to take care of, of the people of this world, ourselves included. And by wealth, I mean any kind of surplus. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're a millionaire or whether you have just enough and maybe a little bit extra to go to a movie once in a while. It's all the same. It's wealth. Now, this being the means that God uses in our world to do good things, think of for a moment about Speaking of Fauquier Hospital, where I was this week, have you ever gone and waited in the waiting room of the emergency room? As you sit there waiting in agony for your name to be called, uh, you look around that very nice room and there's a sign on the wall that you can read that tells you that the money to build that room came from a benefactor right here in the county. And I, I know who this man was, and out of his surplus... He did something very good with his money. Likewise, out of the surplus that God gives us, we, we give to the church, we give to missions, we, we give to good and godly causes, and, and we even give out of the surplus of our time. That's part of our wealth too. And we do all of this for the glory of God. The concept of doing good with our wealth is a principle that's, that's interwoven uh, not only in scripture, into scripture, but also into our own lives of worship of God. And, and, and this is woven as well into the exercise of our faith. Since God has been merciful to us, when we do good with our money, 
what we're doing is compassionately recognizing the same need in others that God recognized in us. And so Proverbs 19:17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Paul also declares in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so that means our attitude about money is extremely important. God calls us to be selfless about money, even as we manage it well, because we want to continue to have enough to give, uh, even as we provide for ourselves and our own families. Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, he's speaking to to about brothers and sisters in the faith but mainly the brothers since they were uh, the heads of their households if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever and so these are the kinds of things that are at the heart of Proverbs 13 11. this verse confronts us with two attitudes toward wealth and forces us to answer the question what is my treasure for or maybe even who is my treasure for so here's how this verse is laid out and and we know by now that uh, that proverbs is constantly making a contrast between the foolish person and the wise person and this verse is no different in essence what we're seeing is the difference between a fool and a wise person and so first we're going to learn about a fool's attitude toward wealth and its purposes and second we'll learn about a wise person's attitude toward wealth and its purposes so first let me let me read proverbs 13:11 for us and then we're going to embark on a extremely short history of stewardship in the bible because stewardship is the foundation for what we're going to learn today and understand uh, and, and so that we can understand what's presented in this verse. So Proverbs 13 11, the word of the Lord. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of his word. Now here's the very short history of uh, of stewardship in the Bible. God established uh, the foundation for godly management of money and profit in the very beginning when he established the concept of stewardship. R.C. Sproul lays all of this out in a little book uh, called How Should I Think About Money? And this is part of his Crucial Question series and I encourage you to, to find it. You can get it for free online. Uh, off of Amazon it'll be free as a Kindle book or it's just a few dollars if you buy the the analog version but our our dominion of creation is rooted in the idea of stewardship not not just the authority to use creation but to manage it responsibly and so Genesis 1:28 says that God blessed them that is Adam and Eve and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And so Sproul, again, he asserts that that dominion over the earth is not a license to exploit, pillage, consume, or destroy the earth. It is a responsibility to exercise stewardship over our home by working and keeping it. And that good stewardship, because this is part of creation as well, that good stewardship extends to our personal and business finances. Since God is the ultimate provider of everything we have, just as the next verse in Genesis 1 teaches us. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is the essence of wealth, isn't it? To have the things that we need to survive and to live and to be comfortable in life. And so God reminded his people again uh, of that lesson by raining down the manna later on in Exodus. And this is also why, uh, by the way, that we constantly are thanking God for every meal that we eat and, and we thank God so often for the things that we have because we're acknowledging that it all comes from him. Whether our wealth, wealth is manned, uh, measured in manna or in dollars. And so since God gives it to us, wealth is good. Wealth is good and he expects that we're going to use it well to be good stewards of it. And so this means that wealth is not evil in and of itself and neither is being poor for that matter. It's our attitude toward money that becomes the problem. And it becomes a problem when we turn to money, to wealth, for contentment and security instead of God. And so this leads us to our first look at a fool's attitude toward wealth. This is the problem, you see, that is raised in the first half of our verse. Uh, here we encounter a fool's attitude toward wealth and its purpose. The first half of, of verse 11 says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Well, let's first understand uh, what waste, uh, waste, what wealth gained hastily means. Let's first understand this. The key to understanding this statement is the Hebrew word uh, for gained hastily. It's actually one word. Uh, but this Hebrew word is hebel. And let's find out what it meant to the very first readers of Proverbs. You see, to the Jews, uh, the word hebel implies, first of all, fraud and in fact some English translations of this verse render Hebel as fraud and so you would read uh, that wealth gained by fraud will dwindle fraud of course is accumulating wealth dishonestly without care to who gets cheated or hurt and of course this is forbidden by at least two of the ten commandments the eighth and the tenth the eighth commandment is you shall not steal and the tenth is you shall not covet Hebel also conveys, this Hebrew word also conveys that the wealth gained here in Proverbs 13.11 is gotten for its own sake, really as an idol. This is for purely selfish reasons, of putting trust in having things over trust in God to provide. And this is pure vanity, which, which means essentially utter uselessness with no eternal value, none at all. And so replacing God with things is fool's gold 
because we allow ourselves to believe that our real security and identity lies in those things, lies in that wealth rather than in God. In fact, God warns his people in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And that covenant, of course, is that he will take care of his people. He will keep his promises. This is the epitome of pride, to believe that our wealth and power come from our efforts alone it's the epitome of pride to ignore God's hand in giving us our talents and gifts in the first place of giving us uh, a job when we need it or even God's wisdom in withholding one from us when we need to remember the lesson of the manna we need to remember that everything comes from God when we erase God from the balance sheet our wealth is absolutely meaningless And when that's our attitude, the Hebrew word for gained hastily, Hebel, reminds us that we can easily fall into the temptation to do evil instead of good in our pursuit of wealth. See, it becomes all about ourselves. And this is why Paul warns the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I think we've probably all heard of of celebrities who have quickly risen from rags to riches and then back to rags again. Recently, I read through a a list of celebrities, of famous people like this, who were at the top of the charts, man. They had it all. But then they died penniless. And almost every one of them had turned to drugs, to promiscuity, to deception, to all sorts of evil things in their lives. They had more wealth than most of us could even ever imagine, but they weren't happy. They turned to these evils to try to find happiness, and it wasn't there. And that's borne out in the things that they did. Love of money over God can also cause us to be people who actually break laws. We use other people for personal gain, like like in a bad movie about the mob. But these things do happen in real life. They do. Corporations sometimes use deceptions to to make money and they they treat their employees badly and pay them low wages so so that they can have a bigger profit. A long time ago, my dad was approached by a friend and a former colleague and this colleague, a former colleague of dad's, wanted dad to invest in his company. And I I remember clear as day, uh, to this day, this man sitting in our living room, I was like eight years old or something, and he explained his proposal to my dad, and man, it sounded really good. But in the end, because my dad was a prudent man, and because he heard God's call to 
to manage his money well, he declined the offer to invest in this company because it seemed too good to be true because, because the promise that this man made to my dad was that he was going to get rich pretty quick. He was going to have a huge return on his money. Well, lo and behold, a few months later, we opened the Washington Post, and right there in the pages of the Washington Post was a story about this so-called friend of my dad's and how he had been running a shell game with people's money, and he'd cost some people their life savings, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and he went to jail for it. And so money causes people to do a lot of evil things, to have it and to accumulate it. This is the epitome of pride and foolishness. And so now uh, we get to look at a wise person's attitude toward wealth and see the difference. You see, as God's people, we're, contented, we're, we're called to be contented with whatever God gives us. Paul teaches us this in 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain. You hear that? That's a huge profit. Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And so the rest of Proverbs 13, 11, the second half of this verse, is teaching us that wealth can have eternal value when we have that kind of godly perspective on it, which causes us to use money wisely. And so let's consider a wise person's attitude toward wealth and the reasons for it. And so the second half of verse 11 reads like this. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. That is, will increase wealth. Gathering little by little in the Hebrew literally is to gather on the hand. And so some translations render this phrase as whoever earns it through labor. So whoever earns through labor, earns their wealth through labor, will increase it. And this really gets at the heart of the matter here in verse 11. The Jews would have heard something like this. You'll increase your wealth through honest and honorable work, gathering it with purpose over time. The reason wealth increases in this way is because our attitude about money becomes God-centered. And the more that God gives us, the more we use it for his glory, and so the more God gives us. It's a a wonderful uh, principle here. And this is all grounded in the principle of stewardship. Just as our role as stewards of God's creation continues even after the fall, we're also called to be stewards of our wealth so that through us God can accomplish his good with it. And that good, as we already have seen, is first to take care of ourselves and our families and then to take care of fellow believers such as the widows and orphans whom James reminds us to remember and even to benefit the world, the people whom the Bible calls foreigners or sojourners, both culturally and spiritually. These are people who are not followers of God, necessarily. And the reason for this, the reason we do this, that we show uh, that, that we benefit even them, even with our wealth, is to show them the same kind of love and care that the Lord has shown us. Even when we were disobedient, just as the Jews were so many times as they wandered around in the desert. So what God did is he gave his people laws for treating foreigners fairly and even as equals in some circumstances when they were living around the Hebrew people. 
And God summed up the reason for those laws by declaring this in Deuteronomy 10, verse 19. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, I did this for you, so you should do it for other people. And that meant that not only, not only that, that God expected his children to treat them well, but he also expects we, his children, to share in the wealth that we have while these people are among us, or well, in this world, we are among them. For the Jews, it was these, these sojourners who would travel through and, and spend time with them, uh, and, and they were, many of them, unbelievers. And so God expects his children in that time to treat those people well, to share in the wealth of, of God's nation uh, while these people were among them. And so the wealth that God gives us he means for us to share because God takes care of us spiritually and physically. Sharing our wealth also demonstrates that our trust isn't in material things. Our trust is in God. And so the way that we use our money reveals what's in our hearts, doesn't it? Pride or humility. If we're proud, if we're a fool, we'll use it for ourselves. And we'll likely depend on it for our peace and contentment. But if we're humble, that is if we're wise, we know what and who our money is for. But what if we're not wealthy? What if we're having a really hard time paying the bills? What does this mean? Well, first I think it's helpful for us to take it four reasons for poverty. Four reasons for poverty, and only one of them is our fault. And this is something that Sproul lays out in his little book on how to think about money. So again, I invite you to find that book and, and, uh, and read it. First, some people are poor as a result of some kind of calamity that they can't control. These are people who cannot be productive because of illnesses or, or very difficult circumstances that are beyond their control. We all know people who are like that, and they deserve our compassion. Second, some people are poor as a result of being oppressed or exploited, either by institutions or a government. This happened to the people of Israel when they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And that kind of injustice has happened to a lot of people groups in our culture. And so we should have compassion and mercy on them. And now scripture tells us as well the third reason people are poor, and that is that people are lazy. This is a common theme in Proverbs, and here's one of my favorite uh, Proverbs within this book about being lazy. Proverbs 24, 26, uh, 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so a uh, let me try that again. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. You know, you hear that door just like that, and so the sluggard turns over in his bed to get some more sleep, and he's not productive. A person who is lazy like this produces nothing of value, and here's what Paul had to say about lazy people. First Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 10 
For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so as we look around us in our world, we have to be careful, on the one hand, not to paint with too broad a brush when we encounter uh, a poor person. When someone asks, they may have a genuine need. On the other hand, uh, we do need to be aware uh, that some people are like that sluggard uh, who lies in bed and does nothing for themselves or anyone else. And Paul gives us the remedy for that right here in 2 Thessalonians 3. But there's a fourth reason why some of us are poor, and that's for righteousness' sake. These are people uh, who have chosen not to pursue high-paying careers, even though they could have, or maybe they've abandoned those careers because they have devoted their entire lives and even sometimes their own wealth to be able to carry the gospel to people who need Jesus. And Sproul declares that the supreme example of this kind of poverty is Christ himself, who had no place to lay his head, who was willing to abandon temptation and everything else for the sake of serving others. And so notice that two of these four reasons for poverty have to do with things that are beyond our control, calamity and oppression. We should have compassion for people who are victims of calamity and oppression. These things are not your fault if that's what you're going through right now. But in them, you are learning a very difficult lesson to trust God for what you need, just as the people of Israel learned in the desert. Meanwhile, two of these four reasons have to do with our own choices. One of them sinful, that is laziness, and the other righteous because we have a great zeal for the Lord. When we're lazy, we're not obeying God. We're not even taking care of ourselves or anyone else. But when we choose poverty for the Lord's sake, for the sake of the gospel, just as when we choose to share our wealth for the good of others and other circumstances, but when we choose poverty for the glory of God, we're investing in God himself. We're investing in our eternal future. Honest and honorable work, whether it's flipping burgers or running a corporation in a godly way or making disciples in faraway places, all of this glorifies God. And so whether we're managing just a little bit or a whole lot, God provides for us through the means of honest work. And this is where our wealth, again, relatively speaking, some have millions, some don't but we pretty much all have wealth in this country. We are very, very blessed in this country. So in the parable of the talents, the talents are, is money in Jesus' day, Jesus is teaching us about our responsibility uh, to do his work while he's away. That is until he comes again. We're waiting for him uh, to come again. He has ascended into heaven as the catechism taught us, but he is coming one day uh, back for his own uh, to carry us into glory. And so beyond this spiritual lesson of the talents, Jesus is also teaching us a priceless lesson about the value of wise financial management. 
In the story, you see, there's a master who, who needs to go away for a while. And he asks his servants to be the stewards of his property while he's gone. And some of them wisely double the money uh, in, the mother, in the master's absence. They take the money that the master has given them and they, they double it. But there's one guy who's really fearful. And he goes out in his backyard, as it were, and he takes a shovel and digs a hole and buries the money in there to keep it safe. And on his return, the master, he praises the men who made a profit for him, but he, man, he really chastises the guy who did not. And in fact, he calls him, you wicked and slothful servant. And he goes on to say that this guy should have invested the, the master's money with the bankers so that a profit could be made. And finally, the master commands his servants in Matthew 25, verse 30, to cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the, the point of that parable is that if we're followers of Christ, we're called to do the work that he has told us to do. He has given us salvation, this, this fantastic wealth in that sense, and we are called uh, to carry that salvation and increase his kingdom by proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. And so along with many, 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 many other things, God also uses our money to do that. God wants to use our money for his glory. And so this parable teaches us that it's not so much about how much money we have, but what we do with what we have, with what we're given. My dad had an uncle named Carl. And my, my dad uh, looked up to his uncle Carl almost as a, as a second father. And my dad wrote about him in his memoir. Now, today, if we met Carl, we might think that he was lazy, a sluggard who rolls over in his bed, because he had very, very little materially. But, in fact, Uncle Carl was a very hard worker. You see, he had chosen to live off the land. This, is the, this was the tradition that he grew up in, and he wanted to continue it. And so he, he, uh, he did this through subsistence farming and, and hunting, and sometimes he worked the 60-acre uh, farm single-handedly with no help at all, and he used a mule to do the plowing. And In fact, he never owned any kind of significant machinery. He never owned a car, even though everyone else did. He didn't care about those things. But even though he didn't have that much, my dad writes that Uncle Carl uh, would always have a gift for people. And so when he would go to visit family, and I, this sounds a little odd to our ears today, but he would give the gift of fresh squirrel meat, which was a favorite of my mother's, my dad said. And man, you know, when you really love something, you appreciate that gift. And that's what my Uncle Carl was giving uh, to my dad's mother. And then my dad goes on. He was exceptionally generous and also thrifty. If he thought you really needed it, he would give you his last shirt. But he never wasted anything either. If a hunting trip produced more game than he could use, he canned the meat for, for the future. You see, this is how a wise person handles what God has given him. He sees his own needs, uh, sees to his own needs by working in honest labor by working in an honorable way. And God uh, increases that wealth so that he can bless other people. 
That's what a wise person does. Uncle Carl, you see, was a devoted believer. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is what gave him this attitude about things and about money. I think he understood perhaps better than most of us what Jesus meant when he declared in Luke 12, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. God is calling us, I believe, as his children to be a lot like my Uncle Carl. Not, not about how much we have or how little we have. Either way, because God gives us what we need and he gives us a surplus when we use it for his purposes. Proverbs 13, 11, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. A fool's desire for wealth is altogether different from a wise person's. A fool wants it for himself. A fool thinks that wealth is going to sustain him and that, that he doesn't really need God, that, that wealth and having things is what's going to make him happy and satisfied in life. And this can lead a fool to do evil things, to gain and accumulate wealth. And he tends to spend it all on himself without care or compassion for other people and it just dwindles away into meaningless, meaninglessness. It's just worthless. A wise person, on the other hand, understands that his wealth can be earned through honest labor and wise choices. He understands that his wealth is not only for himself, but for his family, for his fellow believers, and for the glory of God in the world as the gospel is proclaimed. His wealth increases because he uses it for godly reasons. And so all of this forces us, doesn't it? It really forces us to answer this question for ourselves. What or who is my treasure for? The answer comes to us straight from the lips of our Lord in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, wealth for wealth's sake can disappear in a heartbeat, just like that. Somebody can steal it, the stock market could crash, and my goodness, if our hope is in that wealth and that happens, we're in a real fix, aren't we? We're really treading on thin ice if our hope is in something as fleeting as material things. Jesus goes on in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, laying up treasures in heaven are, are essentially good works stored up before God. These are things that we do for the glory of God, even things that we do with our money. This is just as in the parable of the talents. When our master returns, he wants to see, our Lord wants to see, what we've done with what he's given us, spiritually and materially. What we do with what he's given us is directly related to the very next verse, the very next thing that Jesus says. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Using the wealth that God has given us only for ourselves means that money is our God. There's no easy way to say that. We look to it for contentment. We use our wealth for our pleasure alone. And we ignore the needs of those around us. And we don't trust that God is going to essentially repay us for our generous deeds as Proverbs 19.17 declares. This kind of self-centeredness means, well, that we're full of pride. And we think that we're more important than other people and even more important than God. We know better than God. You see, when we gather up treasures on this earth as as if our lives depended upon it, our attention and our commitment inevitably turns to earthly matters rather than to the will of our Father in heaven. And if that's the case then we treasure ourselves and the pleasures of this world more than we treasure God. But when we understand money from a godly point of view, we know that God is using our wealth to take care of us, to take care of other people, to take care of our families, to take care of people in the body in real need, or even to help proclaim the gospel to those who need and even hate Jesus. And so we want to give to causes that that promote the gospel. We want to uh, use our money uh, for reasons that promote the gospel in our world. When we are wise, when we understand money from a godly point of view, we understand that we need God. And we understand this from a position of humility, knowing that he is the one who ultimately takes care of us. He is the one who ultimately provides everything that we have. And that's when, that's when our hearts treasure God above all things. Because we know that God has seen even to our greatest need, and that is our salvation and eternal life with him. Amen. Let's pray. Holy, just, righteous, loving, merciful, and providing God, we thank you and praise you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, if if by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit you have uh, instilled some conviction in us today, because that conviction will draw us closer to you and draw us to a life where we, well, where we want to serve you more, even with our money. Father, uh, we thank you that you have given us the gift of surplus, of of wealth, of providing for the things that we need, not only uh, to take care of ourselves, but to take care of those around us and even to proclaim your gospel. And so, Father, we give you thanks and honor and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so speaking of comfort, speaking of contentment, uh, let's hear our benediction this morning from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and deed. Amen.
Amen. Thanks for being here and go in peace.